Now, shall we turn, dear friends, to the Grand Old Book, the Bible, and we're turning to the second book of the Bible, which, of course, is the book of Exodus. I'm going to read from uh, the third chapter of Exodus. And we're going to read from verse 1. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1. Thy Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert, and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight while the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land, unto a good land, and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me. And I have seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, dear friends, I have been talking about you. Been talking to the Lord about you. Asking the Lord's guidance with regard to the service this evening <clears throat> and to bring to you a message that will challenge you and will transform you so that you might leave this church better than when you came in. And I'm going to do three things this evening. I'm going to make a statement. And then secondly, I'm going to give you reasons for the statements. And then thirdly, going to give you the consequences of the statements. So that's the menu this evening. First of all, a statement. And then second, secondly, the reason for the statements. And then, of course, uh, the outcome of the statements. 
Now, I want to listen very carefully to uh, the statement I'm going to make. It's a very wonderful one. It's a very profound one. And if we grasp it and understand it, it will change and transform our lives. And that's what I've been asking God to do this evening. That God will take this message and use it to change and transform our lives as the Lord's people. So here's the statement. Listen very carefully. I mean something to the Lord that you don't. And likewise, all of you as individual Christians mean something to the Lord that I don't. That's the statement. Go to repeat it very carefully so that you will grasp it. I mean something to the Lord that you don't. And likewise, all of you as individual Christians mean something to the Lord that I don't. Now, isn't that a very wonderful statement? Now, I have made the statement, and I must be prepared to give reasons for making the statement. Not just sufficient these days to stand up as preachers and to make statements. We must be prepared to give reasons why we've made the statements. Now, I'm going to give you, first of all, a very simple, logical reason for the statements. And, of course, the simple, logical reason for that statement is this, that all of us are different. No two of us are the same. They reckoned there are about 7.5 billion people making up the world's population. It's always gone up, but roughly about 7.5 billion people, the world's population. And every one of those 7.5 billion people, they have all got different fingerprints. Now, isn't that utterly amazing? All of them, without exception, have got different fingerprints. And then, also consider, not only the fingerprints, but also consider your DNA. You've got your own DNA, I've got my own DNA which is unique to you. And then add to that your voice. And they reckoned that your voice has 100 variations with regard to your voice. So that makes you one of a kind. You are unique. And when God made Stanley Shaw, he broke the mold 
and there's never going to be another Stanley Shaw. And you're probably saying, thank goodness for that. And when God made Sam be seen, he broke the mold. And there's never going to be another Sandy Steen. <laughs> Did you hear that? <laughs> and when God made Graham Adams, he broke the mold. And there's never going to be another Graham Adams. The mold's been broken. He is unique. Sam is unique, I'm unique, and the same thing applies to each one of us in this meeting this evening. You are one of a kind, you are unique, and there's never going to be another you or another me. That's the first logical, natural reason for the statement, which is quite rational. We can understand that. But on top of that, there is a biblical reason for making the statements. And we have it here in Exodus chapter 3. Now please bear in mind that when the Lord appeared to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, he has reached the grand age of 80 years of age. Because the life of Moses can be divided up into three equal 40-year periods. The first 40 years of his life was spent in Pharaoh's palace. Remember, he was rescued from the River Nile. And for the first 40 years, he was brought up in Pharaoh's palace. And there is every possibility that he would have succeeded to the throne of Egypt. Because that particular pharaoh did not have a son. He had a daughter. So the first 40 years in Pharaoh's palace as a prince. The second 40 years of his life was spent in the backside of the desert in Horeb, looking after the sheep of his father-in-law, Jethro. So when you come to Exodus chapter 3, the first 40 years have come and gone, the second 40 years have come and gone, and he has reached the age of 80. Think of that. 80 years of age. And he's about to commence his life work. <laughs> so you people, when you get to 70 or 75 or 80, think of it. You made it, you're finished, you're done. Oh no. Here's Moses, 80 years of age, and he was about to commence the next 40 years of leading the people of Israel not into the promised land unfortunately but to the very brink the very border of the promised land so he's not a young fellow 88 years of age and I can imagine in Moses' life it probably was a dull boring sort of life the same thing day after day looking after the sheep tending to them because sometimes life can be monotonous. It can be boring. Doing the same thing day after day. But here's a day that's going to change 
those is life forever. Going about the same business. And then suddenly, looking after the sheep, the backside of the desert, suddenly this old bush begins to ignite into a flame. Now, no doubt, there were other times in his life in which he saw that same, th- that same thing happen under the blazing sun. Bushes would suddenly ignite and then just burn out very quickly. But this was different. And this drew his attention because here's a bush, it's burning, but it's not being consumed. So God got his attention. He says, I will turn aside and see this great sight why the bush is not burned. And when he turned aside, he heard God speak to him, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here am I. And the Lord said, take off your sandals, for the ground whereon you stand is holy ground. And then here's what the Lord said to Moses. Verse 8. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father. Now, God doesn't mention Moses' father by name, but it was Amram. That was his name. I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, God could have said, I am the God of the patriarchs. And that would be sufficient. But notice what God does. He mentions these people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He mentions them individually. He mentions them separately for a purpose. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. And the the lesson here, friends, is this. God does not lump us all together. No. He is the God of the individual. That is not wonderful. Isn't that precious? He's the God of the individual. He's the God of Psalm 16. He's the God of Graham Adams. He's the God of Stanley Shaw. Put your name in. He is your God. He's the God of the individual. And that very simply are the reasons behind the statement I've made. The natural logical reason we're all different, we're one off, we're individuals. And then secondly, because God has said, I am the God of the individual. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, we come thirdly to the outcome of all this. And I want you to try and follow me very closely, because here we move from the general to the particular. We move from the crowd to the individual. Now that's very important. And have you ever noticed in the Bible, over and over and over again, you have the emphasis from the general to the particular, from the crowd to the individual. Take a few examples. You Scottish folks know Psalm 23, 
Of course you do. How's the commence? Not the Lord is our shepherd. Oh no. Not the Lord is the shepherd. Oh no. Not the Lord is a shepherd. David says the Lord is my shepherd. My shepherd. Of course he was the shepherd of other people of God at that time. But David's thinking not of others. He's thinking of himself. And he says the Lord is my, my shepherd. It's actually the lovely Hebrew expression Jehovah Roi. Jehovah my shepherd. Isn't that wonderful? He's my shepherd. And dear Christian, that's what you are able to say. The Lord is your shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And then of course, you remember going to the New Testament, we find that our Lord's mother, Mary, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, here's what she says. And this is so wonderful. She says, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced, not in God our Saviour, or God the Saviour, or God a Saviour, but my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Saviour. You see, from the general to the particular, from the crowd to the individual, my Saviour. And you can trace that right through the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Time and time and time again, you have this tremendous use of, of the personal possessor pronoun. My, my Shepherd, my Saviour. Now then, let's work this out. In a fivefold way this evening. Very simply. Now, I have to use the personal pronoun tonight to emphasize what I'm trying to get over. But you have to apply that to yourself as I speak. And here's the first thing. As a result of this unique one-off relationship we have with God. Here's the first thing. He knows me. Now you repeat that in your own mind. He knows me. Now isn't that absolutely marvelous? He knows me. They tell me, do you know me? Do I know you? You know my name? You've heard me many times because he keeps inviting me along to preach. You've heard me preach many times, but uh, you don't know me. Tell me, do you know what I'm thinking? Of course you don't. Do you know my, do you know my feelings? Of course you don't. Do you know my aspirations? Of course you don't. And likewise, the same thing applies to you, friends. We don't know each other in the depths. But here is someone that does know you. Now let me show you this. Go to Psalm 139. Here's, here's a tremendous psalm. 
Psalm 139. And this is David speaking. Then this is what he says. O Lord, thou hast searched us. Oh no. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsetting and my uprising. Every time you sit down, every time you get up, he knows about it. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Listen to this. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. In other words, here's someone who knows every thought you think. Here's someone who knows every aspiration and every longing that you have. Every weakness, every virtue, every vice. He knows absolutely everything about you. There are no skeletons in your cupboard he doesn't know about you. There are no secrets you can hide from him. He knows you completely. My dear friends... That in one sense may be very terrible, but on the other hand, it may be very precious. You go into the Lord's presence, and you can be absolutely honest with Him. Because when you're alone with God, you can't put the mask on, you can't put the facade on. Pride withers, because God sees you as you are. He knows every thought you think, every desire you have, every word you're going to speak. He knows you absolutely. In other words, David is speaking of the great attribute of God's omniscience. His all knowledge of the past, the present and the future. God knows everything about everything. That's why we refer to his omniscience. He knows all things. But David does not apply God's omniscience to the universe. He applies it to himself. He says, O Lord, you've searched and you've known me. He knows me. He knows me completely. Perfectly. Absolutely. So don't try and bluff them, dear friends. It won't work. It may work with me or others. It won't work with God. Don't try and bluff them. He knows exactly how you're feeling. Isn't it sometimes sad we try and put an impression on with God? We say, oh Lord, I'm glad when we're really sad. That doesn't work, friend. If you're sad, tell God you're sad. If you're disappointed, tell him you're to be, in other words, to be absolutely honest with God. Because you have to be. You can bluff me, and I can bluff you, but you can't bluff God. And have you ever noticed in the book of Psalms, they're so wonderful, how absolutely honest and transparent they were in God's presence. And sometimes they use language that we would be reluctant to use but they did because they're dealing with God so he knows me so you apply that to you he knows you here's the second one 
And I put this secondly for a purpose. He loves me. Now tell me, if your best friend or your church member or even your husband or your wife, if they knew the very worst about you, would they still love you? Think of that. Would they still love you if they knew the worst about you? Or your faults, or your failures, or your shortcomings, would they still love you? Perhaps not. But here was someone who, who knows you completely. All your faults, all your failures, all your shortcomings, and blessed be his name, he loves you. Here's what he said to Jeremiah. He says, yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, and with loving kindness have I drawn thee. And here's what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2.20. He says, the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Every time I read those words, I sometimes wonder, was there a lump in his throat? Were there tears in his eyes? As he thought of that, the Son of God who loved me? I persecuted Christians. I put them into prison. I compelled them to blaspheme the name of God. And in my heart there was a hatred for this Jesus who said he was the Messiah. And yet we know his conversion. Dr. Luke gives it in Acts chapter 9. God saved him. And he says, the son of God who loved me, me, the persecutor, the blasphemer. He loved me and gave himself for me. So dear Christian this evening, he loves you. With all your faults, with all your failures, with all your shortcomings. And that love will never let you go. Have you ever sung George Matheson's great hymn? It commences, O love, that will not let me go. You know the hymn? Do you know how it was written? George Matheson was a Church of Scotland minister. And there was evidence that he was going blind. And eventually he did become blind. But before he went blind, he was engaged to a young lady to be married. But when the young lady discovered that George Matheson, her future husband-to-be, was going blind, she broke off the engagement. Now, can you imagine how George Matheson would have, would have felt? The one that he loved and about to marry has broken off the engagement. And as a result of that experience, he sat down and he penned those words, O oh love, that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul on thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths is flow, might richer, fuller be. O oh love, that will not let me go. And dear Christian, this evening, God loves you and God loves me with a love. And there's no power on earth and there's no power in hell can separate us from that love. It cannot be done because God loves us.
with an everlasting love. I must say, hallelujah. You see, he knows me. And even though his, his omniscience knows all about me, yet he loves me. With an everlasting love that shall never end for the countless ages of eternity. But then notice thirdly, not only does he know me and loves me, but he cares for me. Here's what Peter said, 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your care upon him, that's God, for he careth for you. Isn't that beautiful? He cares for you. He cares for me. Sometimes when I preach in that particular verse, I give the little congregation, the big congregation, a logical test. And I just simply say this. Let's tell me, dear friends, if you give the Lord all your cares, which which Peter says you should do, cast it all. If you give the Lord all your cares, well then tell me, how many have you got left? Now you want to see the expressions in people's faces. That's an education itself. Well, of course, logically, if you give the Lord all your cares, well then you've got none. Ah, but there's some Christians, they like to keep some in reserve. They get worried and they've got nothing to worry about. My dear friends, this isn't academic. This isn't theoretical. This works. If you don't believe it, put it in the test. And tell me, have you come to the meeting this evening? Have you got any cares? Have you got any cares? I don't know what cares. There may be financial cares. There may be uh, uh, health cares. Different cares. They come in all shapes, and, like, like, like was all sorts, of, all different shapes and sizes. Do you have any cares the same? Well then, put it, put it to work. Test it for yourself. Do what Peter says. Casting all your cares upon him. For he careth for you. Now sometimes, don't we sing a lot of lies in church? Have you noticed that? Well, what do you mean, Stanley? Well, take for example, Joseph Scriven's great hymn. And you've sung this hymn many times in this very place. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. They tell me, do you carry everything to God in prayer? Of course you don't. But sometimes we sing these lies. We sing these hymns. But we don't take everything to God in prayer, don't we? We keep something back. Now it's not just a hymn by Joseph Scriven. Here's what Paul says. Be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Now that's your part. Here's God's part. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep God over your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. 
He loves me. He knows me. He cares for me. Cares for you. He knows all your cares. He knows all your problems. He knows all your worries. And you can take the whole lot and you can cast them upon him. And his shoulders of omnipotence can uphold you. Now then, very quickly, and this is another wonderful aspect, he works all things together for my good and for your good. Romans 8 and 28 is still in the Bible. What's it say? And we think, or no, and we hope, or no, and we know that some things, or no, many things, no, no, most things, no, no, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and who are the called according to his purpose. That applies to your life, that applies to my life. Now I don't know much about my cars, but I put the bonnet up and have a look at it, doing very simple little things. I look at it, and there's wires going here, and there's wires going there, and I think to myself, how on earth does all this work? Wires going here, wires going there. But when I press the ignition, there's power, and it takes me to wherever I'm going. In other words, it's all working together in the engine to give me power to move. And dear Christian, you listen very carefully. You may be having a difficult time, a hard time. But there's coming a day, perhaps in heaven, that you will look back upon your life and you will see how all those things synchronize together the good and the bad the mountaintop, the valley the adversary, the trials, the testing they all synchronize together for your good and for God's ultimate glory because nothing happens by chance we don't believe in luck, we don't believe in fate and sad to say many of God's people they use that language Luck, good luck, bad luck. How can you believe in luck when you believe in God? Oh no, friends, we don't believe in fate. We don't believe in luck. Oh no. Here's the psalmist says, my times are in your hand. Nothing happens by chance. And God is working all things together for your good and for my good. Are you good at jigsaw puzzles? I used to visit a woman in Wisha and when if I went to visit her, she says, Stanley, let me show you this jigsaw puzzle I've been doing. Of a great price, she, she brought it out and she showed me the jigsaw and it was all complete, the picture was all complete. But behind that there were hours upon hours of putting all those pieces together. And I just love when, when people do the, the hard work and there's just a few more pieces. I like to say, just a minute. Let me take those last remaining pieces and I, I slot them in. And it's only when you slot all the pieces in that you see the complete picture. Your life's like a jigsaw puzzle. 
But it's not complete. There are pieces still to be added to it. And one day God will put the last piece in. And you'll see the complete picture. And by your freedom then. That everything worked together for your good. And for his glory. He knows me. He loves me. He cares for me. He works all things together for my good. And then fifthly and very quickly. He will receive me unto himself. John 14. If I go away and prepare a mansion for you. I will come again and receive you unto myself. And what a day that's going to be. When he receives you and receives me personally into the house of many mansions that he's gone to prepare. Let me conclude tonight by referring to a lovely old hymn I came across. It's not in the more modern hymn books, but it's in some of the old hymn books. It's a hymn written by Elsie Yeo. And here's what it says. There's a work for Jesus ready at your hand. Tis the task the master, listen to this, just for you has planned. Haste to do his bidding, yield him service true. There's a work for Jesus, none but you can do. Work for Jesus day by day. Serve him ever, felt and ever, Christ obey. Yield them service, loyal, true. There's a work for Jesus, none but you can do. Second verse, there's a work for Jesus, humble though it be. Tis the very service he would ask of thee. Go where fields are waiting and the labour is few. There's a work for Jesus, none but you can do. There's a work for Jesus, precious souls to bring. Tell him of his mercies, tell him of your keen. Faint not, grow not weary, he will strength renew. There's a work for Jesus, none but you can do. You are unique. You're one of a kind. When God made you, he broke the boat. Never going to be another V. Never going to be another you. We are unique. We are precious. And one day we're going to see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. And this is the prayer of my heart, friends, for this meeting this evening. You can listen, you've listened to this message. Has it got to end one ear, one ear and out the other? Are you going to forget about it? I hope not. I've been asking God to take this message and to use it to change your life and my life so that you'll leave this meeting transformed and changed never, never to be the same again. The danger of meetings is this, friends. We grow accustomed well we go to church we'll be there twice this Sunday that's wonderful but meeting should be the place in which you meet with God and God meets with you and you hear his word and then God changes you from one degree of glory into another degree of glory 
So you leave this meeting and you say, my, isn't it wonderful? I'm unique. <laughs> I'm one of a kind. Never going to be another me. And you're, you're special in God's sight. Oh, may this message grip you. It's grip me, friends. I get passionate about it. This is truth. And Jesus said, you shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. And anyway, the Lord bless you, friends. And listen so fearfully this evening. Thank you.